After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. Welcome to another episode of the Dolman Law Group's David vs. Goliath podcast. I'm here with my partner in crime, Stan Geit, business partner, and esteemed trial lawyer from South Florida and good close friend of ours, Anthony Russo. What I want to discuss today is, you know, say the future of uh, personal injury law, but I guess that future is now in the present, which is private equity entering the field of personal injury. And what we're seeing is lawyers building up mass tort portfolios or even single event practices by scaling their business by borrowing money from lenders. But that brings up the ethical conundrum, if you will. And, you know, it's only defense lawyers that sit and bitch about this, but do the lawyers actually answer to the lender or they answer to their client? And is it really good? Is it going to flood the court with more frivolous lawsuits, which we both know if they were frivolous, they would the case is not going to succeed and the lender's never going to get paid back anyway. So it defeats that argument. But what are your thoughts about private equity entering the field and what are you guys seeing? I, I'll pick up the ball and run with that at first. I think to understand the role private equity plays in the personal injury arena, you got to take a step back and understand what we do. Okay, we bring in cases, we fund these cases, we pay for these cases. Two years down the road, we finally get paid for these cases when they settle, if they settle, right? Yeah. Okay, so my goal, my marketing dollar, our marketing dollar goes to acquiring cases. And each case I bring in is a success. It's in my bank. And at some point in time, I'm going to get paid for that two years down the road, hopefully, right? Okay, let's compare that to a car dealer, right? Every car he purchases goes on his lot. He's going to sell it to someone and make some money. Well, that car on the lot is a hard widget, okay? That car dealer, now that he's got it on his lot, can borrow against it because if he doesn't pay his debt, the bank can then come repo that car. So he gets a loan at a low rate because it's a secured loan. It's secured by an asset. Well, we bring in our inventory. It's a lawsuit. It's a case, right? If we were to borrow against it from a bank, they can't repo it. They can't come take it from us if we don't pay the loan. So the banks essentially view our inventory as being worth zero. You can't borrow from a bank against your personal injury inventory because it's not a widget. It's got nothing to take. There's nothing there. The banking industry isn't as willing to loan to personal injury arenas because they can't, they don't have anything to foreclose on. So now that's why we need private equity. We pay higher rates, but these are people that are willing to loan in this business where there's no hard, tangible asset to repossess if the loan goes bad. Yeah, we actually dealt with that experience ourselves with a bank when we tried to go in there for a credit line renewal. And they looked at what they gave us for that last year and we used it to acquire mass tort cases. And they're saying to ourselves, well, that doesn't really worth anything. When we did tell them beforehand what we were going to do with the money, but they saw it as that's not really inventory to them. They didn't really understand the concept of these cases are inventory, no different than a car dealership having cars because there's no equity in it for them. And also like in Florida, I can't fee split with a non-attorney. So it's not even like they can come repo or put a lien against my attorney's fees. They can put liens against the firm and firm income but they can't lean specific files and share in fees, okay? So you got a bunch of different issues popping up. 
And that opens the door for alternative finance. Anthony, what's your thoughts? As a banking model, it's a very, very difficult model to forecast for a bank. That's why I think banks are traditionally scared of this industry. We're one of the last industries left that's kind of ushered into this whole world now of lending and financing. And I think the only place for an anomaly like the law is for more forward-thinking venture capital people or Wall Street type hedge fund people to literally take chances on these kind of uh, risky bets. How does it help the consumer? Let's start with how it helps the consumer, and then we'll let's talk about the, the uh, defense industry's arguments about how there's an ethical conundrum, which doesn't really affect them anyway, but that's their attack on the lending industry, and that the lawyer answers to the funder, not the client. Well, you kind of have the client on a couple different levels. One, the marketing we do okay, is really dissemination of information. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. We put information out there about claims, how they're being handled, what your rights are, all of this stuff that costs money. Okay. So the more money we have on the more on the front and the more information we can get to a pre-consumer, someone who's not even a client yet, and the more ability we give the consumer to make an informed decision. That's essentially the role of advertising. Okay, so that's in one role, we can use that money to help better educate a consumer on the front end. There's also another aspect of financing, and that has to do with direct entered party loans, right? Much like we don't have inventory, that case has no value to a bank. Like someone who's been injured can't go borrow against their case at a bank. But a lot of times you've been injured, especially if you've been injured bad, you were living paycheck to paycheck, and now you can't work for three months. These people need loans. So private equity can come in and loan to the individual injured person. Is it a high interest rate? Yeah. Yeah, it is a real high interest rate. But if the case goes south and there's no recovery, this person doesn't owe the money back. You missed one thing, though. What about the financing to the law firm to fund the actual case? That was getting ready to be number three. So then the third avenue is where you fund the lawyer themselves. And this is where, hey, I can't loan against it. I can't go out to a bank and borrow money. I need to fund these thousand cases we've got in, in the bank. And each one of them is costing... $20,000 to bring forward. That's where that third avenue is. Attorneys have money to fight the insurance companies, to hire the experts, to do all this stuff while the cases are pending. Right? If you're a firm that's been around 50 years and had this kind of business, you're probably self-funding. Right? If you're a firm that's growing and only been around 10 to 15 years, you need somebody to finance and help you get up that hill because you're not at a maturity, you're growing, and there's a lot of cost to work these cases before you're getting paid on them. Anthony, and you are more of you do you have a big single event practice. I know that. We do a lot of single event work together. We refer cases back and forth. Mostly we refer to you. The question I have, though, is you run a very heavy mass tort practice as well. How expensive is it? Like, why would you need to borrow money? I know the answer, and it's very basic, but the consumer doesn't understand. Why would we borrow money to run a mass tort practice? Why would we borrow money to fund Camp Lejeune cases or AFFF firefighting cases or Tylenol autism cases? Why, you know, in the mass tort field, why is there financing? Why is it needed? Well, I mean, it's the old adage, leveling the playing field. But how many times have we seen movies or television shows where, You've got the big, bad Fortune 500 company that's saying, we will paper you to death. We will bury your lawyers in paper and they'll never be able to come. You need 
that kind of funding, you need the finance behind you to even make the fight fair. You're fighting against, a lot of times, some of the largest corporations in the world that have access to some of the most high-priced law firms in the world. And it's little John Q. Public, guy who had his earplugs, you know, wearing earplugs in the military and lost his hearing because of it, or someone who drank drank water out of a well in Camp Lejeune and was, you know, developed some kind of horrible cancer or used a, a product of talcum powder product or a weed killer product and ended up with a life-threatening or life-ending type of a, of a disease. You're fighting the, the largest corporations in the world. And in order to do that, it's just plain and simple. You need to have some kind of funding available to be able to at least get into the ring and have a fair fight. So like on the uh, Lejeune, you're going up against the Department of Defense. In terms of the 3M earplug cases, that's 3M is a huge company. They are a Fortune 100 company. In AFFF, we're dealing with Chevron, 3M, DuPont. These are giant companies. Tylenol Autism, a Tylenol is made by Johnson & Johnson, a humongous company. How does the money level the playing field? What does it do for you? The money allows you to take these cases, which sometimes will take four and five years to prosecute. It allows you to, to aggregate some of these clients that you'll have enough people to go ahead and prove out your case with the amount of clients and, and testimony and things that you need. It, it allows for to have access to the same things that these Fortune 100 and Fortune 500 companies have, same kind of things that they're lost, the same access to the same type of things that the law firms have to use to defend these cases. It just allows us to be able to fight you know, what seems to be whatever fair fight we could fight. I'd almost couch it in these terms. The, the defense, the insurance company, the company that's done wrong, created a dangerous product. Their goal in litigation is not to do the right thing. It's not to make all these people whole. It's not to admit we did wrong. It's to minimize their expense. That's it. Litigation is driven by actuaries. These are people who crunch numbers, and that's all they look at is how can we get this done as cheap as possible? We have to respond to everything they do, right? If they've got a million-dollar defense, we can't have a $10,000 offense. We've got to have a $1 million offense. So they look at that. They know from a defense standpoint, if they know they can spend $10 million and defeat the claim rather than paying $2 billion to settle them on the back end, they're going to outspend the guy on the front end. However, if you've got some a private equity looking at this going, well, if I help this guy fund it on the front end, I know he can help these people get the $2 billion on the back end. It's worth it to me to loan this guy the money to give him the tools. It's a David versus Goliath. Just like the podcast says, that's what we're doing. We're arming David so he can fight Goliath. And that's what private equity comes in and helps us do. And just to elaborate on Stan's point quickly is that when you say they're going to pay, they're going to spend $10 million to save $2 million, a lot of people listening might say, well, what do you mean? That doesn't make any sense. Why not pay the $2 million? What they don't realize is that that $2 million is going to be duplicated hundreds of times because they're going to keep doing the wrong thing because the formula works for them. So they spend $10 million to scare everybody off. Then they make $2 million, $2 million, $2 million, two times 100. Now they've made $200 million. Their $10 million investment to scare everybody off has now turned into a $200 million profit. 
Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've run across claims like that where I've looked at someone and said, look, you've got a $50,000 injury here, but the defense is going to be defending a $50 million claim because if we win, they owe this to a whole bunch of people. There's no way you can bring this claim. Yeah. It's not viable. Good points, guys. All right, to wrap this podcast up, I want to go over two issues. The first attack on the lending business is it creates more access to the courts, which we know, but more frivolous lawsuits. What's your answer to that? And I've said this, the only frivolous lawsuit is someone else's. Okay. No one thinks their own lawsuit is frivolous. And if you are, if it's truly frivolous, those six people in the jury ver in the jury box zip you. They give you zero. It happens all the time, even on legitimate claims. Okay. If you get zero on your claim, the lender doesn't get their money back. Mm-hmm. Okay, the lender's got no interest in forwarding frivolous claims. Nobody does. So a frivolous claim has no value. It's frivolous. We know that. But if they continue to just say this over and over and over again, the second argument, Anthony, who is the ethical obligation to? Does the lawyer answer to the lender? And how much of a role does the lender have in the strategy of the case versus do we answer to the client? I think that's a bigger ethical consideration and one that's going to be expanded upon. I know different state bars have been looking at this forever, but theres I don't think there's an actual good answer to this. Well, it's similar to what I would say is the same model with the doctors in the hospitals. These big firms coming in and buying up hospitals and medical practices. Who's making decisions? Are the doctors making decisions or are the insurance companies making decisions? It's always a fight because every good doctor is fighting to say, I'm the doctor. Okay, I'm going to tell you when the patient needs surgery. I'm going to tell you when the patient needs to be released. I'm going to tell you exactly how the treatment is and stay the heck out of my business. Well, any good lawyer, any lawyer worth his weight in salt is going to take control of the case and say, regardless of what you're lending me, you stay on your side of the ledger. You're the money guys. We're taking care of the claims. We help people. We're going to do what we think is best. And these lenders, they're not stupid. They're going to understand. Oh, some of, these are some of the richest and most successful people in the world, they don't make bad investments very often. They make good investments. And this making investments into lawyers that are going to prosecute these cases properly is a good investment for them. I don't think there's any conflict. I think our interests are 100% parallel when we're dealing with the lender. I don't want a frivolous claim. I don't want to go to trial and get zero and get zipped and lose money. Okay, if you're not good at case selection, if you're not good at identifying what's a true claim, when someone is truly entitled to money, you're going to fail as an attorney because you're not going to be able to bring them in on the front end. You're not going to be borrowing for long because you're not going to be in business for long. So the same principles that allow you to work as a successful attorney, identify those legitimate claims, identify the people that need help and are truly entitled to money for what's happened to them, allow the lenders to feel comfortable working with you because case selection is your purview, not theirs. And if you're good at it, you're not going to win all the time. You're not going to hit it on every one. But if you're good at it, the lender can feel confident working with your clients and they know they got an attorney that's going to support the claim, an attorney that's going to push the claim, and an attorney that's not going to compromise on the claim just because they need the money or something else happens. What about the situation where the lender says, hey, you know, uh, Anthony, Got a thousand AFFF cases or a thousand Camp Lejeune tier one cases. We think they're worth, on average, $325,000. We do not want you selling your inventory until you reach that number or that aggregate. 
but you want to get the case done at $250,000 to $275,000 because you see the risk of holding on to it too long and pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And the Eastern District of North Carolina is suddenly cracking down on many of these cases and some of the tier one cases suddenly become tier two cases. And the lenders here, the clients here, what happens? It's the lawyer's decision. And I think that's why it's important for the right lawyers to be in this type of situation. Guys who are experienced, guys who have done it themselves, done it for a lot of years, and you have to trust the process. You know, it's it's a cliche, but you do have to trust the process. Well, and you kind of have two different things. One, you're talking about a world of mass tort. Mm-hmm. Okay. In the single event world, let's back everyone out of it. Client gets to make the decision. Yeah, yeah. I guess private equity is definitely coming into the single event world too, but much heavier push in mass torts. Yeah. We're seeing it all over the place in terms of buying mass tort portfolios and backing certain horses, being specific lawyers and specific projects. That's where I wonder, and I should, it's not me that wonders. I, mean, I just read an article I was in Law Weekly, and it, uh, it quoted a Cardozo professor who was arguing against a U.S. congressman who was against legal funding, and the Cardozo professor obviously saw the same points we do. This The question again is, who really wears the pants in this room? Is it the lawyer or is it the lender? Does the lawyer want to have a further relationship with that lender and then feels a need to make certain decisions to make the lender happy? I mean, that's I know that we don't practice that way. I know Anthony doesn't practice that way. I know Stan doesn't practice that way. I know I don't practice that way. But are there lawyers who do practice that way? Is that a valid concern in the industry, especially among state bars? Is it true ethical consideration? I hate to jump in, and but I feel like it's no bigger ethical consideration on our side than on the defense. Who do you think funded all these insurance companies? Warren Buffett owns Geico. That's the biggest private equity you can have. All the insurance companies have private equity behind yeah, them. Yeah, Berkshire Hathaway. and billions and billions of dollars behind them in private equity. And it's not only funding the payments, it's funding the defense, it's paying for all the experts, it's doing everything. If they get it, why wouldn't it be fair for the plaintiff to have access to that same avenue of finance? Amen. Well said. And you could spin it the other way and say that defense has had a an ongoing ethical issue with the fact that the insurance company is the one hiring the lawyer to defend the person. We've talked about that hundreds of times. They're making decisions. Who are they really making the decision for? Are they making decision for the individual who's being sued? Or are they making decision on behalf of their company? Well, who's paying them? And in the end, when rubber meets the road, what kind of decision that made it? Who's left out to dry and who's going to be favored? Well said. Yeah. And there's a whole body of bad faith law that comes right from that. Correct. All right, fellas. Any closing remarks? You think we uh, kicked this horse? I think we could probably talk ad nauseum about this stuff because we kind of get into it and nerd out a little bit on it. But I think we've probably talked to the point that we've bored any normal person listening. Well, I appreciate it, gentlemen. Again, thank you, Stan. Thank you, Anthony Russo. I really appreciate you coming on our podcast. You said you were a virgin for podcasting. This is your first time. You you did a hell of a job. So thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. And uh, to all those listening, have a great day and God bless. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. That's D-O-L-M-A-N law.com. Or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney. 
nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.